H2H Fundamentals is officially open for enrollment, but only until October 5th with a bunch of bonuses, including working directly with me for four weeks. Yes, four weeks. In this masterclass, I'm going to teach you my proven H2H method for voir dire, opening and closing step by step. And guess what? Like the name says, it makes your job, the trial process, and your life fun. I swear it. When you're up against a hostile room of people who don't want to be there, you need real strategies that get results. Welcome to From Hostage to Hero, the show that gives you practical advice you can use right now in the courtroom, boardroom, or classroom. Learn how to move your unwilling audience to one that is invested in what you're saying, eager to participate, and engaged in the process. Learn from the attorney whisperer herself, your host, Sari Delamont. Hello, hello. Welcome to those of you who are coming into the room. We are here with Natalie and um, we're going to be doing a trial debrief today on the highest ever uh, med mal verdict in Georgia history. And so I am so excited uh, that you are here. And if you are here and you have questions as we are going through the trial debrief today, um, please load them up in the Q&A and we will take them as we can get to them. Um, but welcome, Natalie, and thank you so much for being here. Um, and congratulations on your win. Thank you. Thank you. I, um, it has been, it has been a surreal experience i think um in the past month for sure and this is the first kind of deep dive conversation i'm having about the trial so this is new for me too i'm so glad that we we got you first and so before we get started why don't you tell everybody what the actual verdict was what was the number that you won in this case it was um it was 10 well it, the, the total of everything after was 77 million and 700,000 and some odd dollars i should know it down to the penny and i don't uh, <laughs> but it, was, it was $10,009,500 in pain and suffering 55 million in the um, value of nick's life it was an additional million dollars in punitives and an additional 11 million in attorney's fees that that we did in a um, sort of a mini trial later the day after we got the verdict. So we got the verdict at 10 a.m. and the judge said, okay, y'all come back at three o'clock because the, the jury had selected yes on the question of attorney's fees and punitives. So we had to have that follow-up sort of mini trial that same day afterwards. So. And as we were talking before we got started, you, your biggest verdict be, before this one was how, how much? It was a million dollars in uh, in 2010. I had um, I had I was 33. I had just started my plaintiff's firm after doing uh, civil defense since law school, and had just um, had just gone out on my own with my law partner at the time, Corey Stern. And it was our first trial. Uh, it was a false arrest trial in federal court. A friend of a friend, and um, yeah. So that, and then, and then had it your first had, trial. It was my first plaintiff's trial. It was nice. Yeah. Nice yeah. to get a verdict on your first plaintiff's trial. Not everybody does. that. I was just talking with um, another female trial attorney that was here this weekend working with me. And I said, you know, when most women trial, trial lawyers quit, <clears throat> it's after their first loss. It's like, they already believe that I don't belong here. And then that first loss just 
tells them they're, they're right. And they leave the profession, which is too bad. And I I'm so glad that we're having at least a small part in turning that around. And so we're just, it was weird for me because then I went through this, you know, 11 year, 12 year drought, right. Where I, I didn't have anything of that level of success. So you start feeling like that must've just been, you know, luck. An anomaly, right. Mm -hmm. Anomaly. And then, you know, you kind of get to the point where it feels a little strange to still be talking about your, you feel like that guy who's still talking about uh, you know, a touchdown he threw in high school at some point. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so, um, right. Remember that verdict way back yeah. when? Well, yeah. everybody here, male or female, is always chasing the eight figure verdict. And here you've gotten it. So we want the details, my lady. So let's start with giving us, um, before we go into the actual details of the case, was this in person? Was it over Zoom? What, kind of give us like the, set the, the stage for us and then we'll t- actually talk about the details of the case. So it was all in person. We were not sure it was going to all be in person. We had gotten permission from the judge to have whatever kind of witnesses appear via Zoom that we needed to, um, but it all ended up being in person. The Masks were optional um, for the jury, and the majority of them wore masks during the entire trial. At least half of them wore masks during the entire trial. Um, there's masks in the courthouse, but as soon as you came into the courtroom, the lawyers could take off the mask. <clears throat> and we were all vaccinated, and you know, but within a few days, someone ended up COVID positive, and so we had a we had a little scare with that. Um, mm. So it was definitely on the back of our minds. We'd gotten two alternates to try to save it because we were anticipating with a three-week long trial that we would run into issues. We, In hindsight, I think we should have gotten more alternates. We lost one immediately um, for another reason, and then we were sort of held our breath. Um, but thankfully, they all stayed the full three weeks, and we dodged a bullet. But looking back, I think that was a mistake. I think I should have gotten more alternates um, just to you know, give me less stress. And how many, since we're talking nationally here and every jurisdiction is different, how many uh, jurors did you have in the box or, you know, to try so you to need, case You with? need 12. Um, 12, okay. And so we had, we started with 14, lost one immediately. And in Georgia, the alternate doesn't know they're the alternate. I don't know if that's the way right. it is everywhere. So no yeah, one- many jurisdictions, not all, but many, yes. Yes. And I think that's the way it should be. Um, sure. And so, yes, yeah, so we, we held our breath, but at, if we would have lost, if we would have lost two, if we'd have lost the, you know, the both alternates and then lost the third, then the defense would have asked for a mistrial and would have gotten a mistrial. And how many did you need to win? Unanimous. Unanimous. Yeah. With 12. Yep. That's tough. All right. So let's talk about what this case was about. Thanks for setting the scene for us there. So what, what were you up against? What, what made you bring this to trial? Well, so this case involved a 29-year-old man who had had a long history of um, mental illness and drug treatment um, and drug abuse issues. He had gotten diagnosed when he was 19 um, with substance abuse disorder as well as bipolar disorder. And he, when he was great, when he was doing well, um, when he was clean and sober and taking his meds he was great and then he would start feeling good go off his meds start using come to his parents say i need help i'm i'm off um i'm not doing okay 
and they would send him back. He had been to 13 different rehab facilities in his life, always wow. willingly. Um, he did not have any um, substantial, he had had some college um, and had done well. His mental health issues presented like they commonly do in young men, sort of late teens, early 20s. But for him, he was much more comfortable with being called an addict than he was uh, uh, accepting his mental illness diagnosis. So mm. it had taken him many, many years to get to the point where he was really willing to accept that he had both and struggled with both. And um, so when he, when he came to this particular facility, he had just started lithium and Seroquel. Um, and his, his particular bipolar disorder would present itself with psychosis. So he would have hallucinations, see things that weren't there. The instinct when he would get to the hospital is, oh, he must be on drugs. They'd do a drug screen and he'd have clean drug screen. And that's how they figured out that he was bipolar was because whenever he had anything in his system, legal or illegal, it would stave off the psychosis. It was only when he was completely mm. clean that the you know, and without any kind of mental health meds that his psychosis would present itself. Makes sense. So yes. And he, you know, no, no real, uh, work history, um, you know, had, had very loving, wonderful parents, but, uh, had been somebody who had struggled for, for a long time. Yeah. So, so Already, uh, the plaintiff attorneys in in the uh, <laughs> in here are like, okay, here's all the problems, right? We don't even know what happened yet, but we've got basically a mentally ill drug addict, right? Who is our uh, uh, at the center of this case? So tell us what happened. So he had come to a facility from North Carolina. Uh, he was from North Carolina originally. Heard about a facility here in Atlanta called Ridgeview, very well thought of. It's a psychiatric hospital. It also has substance abuse treatment uh, abilities. He came there, um, he had just been placed on lithium, which was a new medication that he had never tried before. Um, they, during the time he was there, he was clean and they had to keep upping the lithium to get him to a stable level. Um, they finally did get him to a stable level after about three weeks. And he was really at that point, because he was mentally stable, he was ready to go to a residential drug treatment facility, but he needed a dual diagnosis facility that could handle the, the meds part as well mm -hmm. so yeah. he checked himself into a facility here in Atlanta that represented that they were dual diagnosis and could handle both um, and the day that they he checked in they immediately um, stopped his cut his Seroquel down that first day within a week they took him off his lithium cold turkey and within two weeks they um, kicked him out for what they claimed was being caught with a cell phone. And within two days of being kicked out or two and a half days, he was naked on the fetal in the fetal position on Interstate 85 at four in the morning and was hit by multiple cars and killed. He had a <sighs> clean screen as autopsy, the lab results. He was had no drugs in his system, no illegal drugs in the system. And so it was very much in a lot of ways like a traditional malpractice case we took the position that the psychiatrist um, had violated the standard of care by stopping his medication and that the facility had violated the standard of care and discharging him um, just to a basically a halfway house sober living house without any um, care without any medical care um, and so that was our that was that was the case 
Yeah. And what I think is so incredible about this, besides the problems that, that you have to overcome with, you know, him being mentally ill and, and being an addict is that wrongful death cases are some of the, the hardest cases, as you know, to try to verdict because jurors are thinking, well, what the hell does money do? This person is gone. And so I know that our, our people watching today and those listening later, we're going to want to know um, how, how you were able to talk about the money issue here in this case, but let's pause here for a moment and talk about how you got to H2H um, before trying this case. You were just telling me the story when we get started and I stopped you and I wanted you to tell the story. So tell us a little bit about how you got in our sphere, in my sphere. So other trial lawyers, I'm sure are the same way. So this case had been going on when we tried it, it was five years, almost to the date of um, Nick's death. So, and I had taken the case very early on within a few months of him dying. So I had, I had you know, sort of put everything I have into this case for a long time, I had talked to all my friends about it. And I was at a uh, event and talked to a, was talking to a friend about the case that was coming up. This was in March when the case was supposed to go to trial in May. Didn't end up going to trial until August. But um, and we were talking, and he said, "Hey, there's this book you got to read." And he's he's very much. We both love this the psych the psychiatric aspect of the law. I think of the psychologies of the law, and we both have always bonded and and sort of looking outside the box of new ways to get better and, and to learn and he said there's this, this lady and she's awesome and you would love her and she's funny and it's and I was like well what what exactly why is this any different and he's like well you know it's just it's so focused and it's really specifically about Bordire and opening and you just you just got to read it oh and there's a podcast and so <laughs> in the car in the parking lot I because his name is Curtis Dickinson and I want to uh, have so much to thank him for but he's uh, been a mentor of mine a friend of mine for a long time he's a fabulous lawyer and so I I bought the book in the parking lot and then started listening to the podcast and just became um <laughs> uh it was it was what I did every time I was driving when I was driving my son to school when I anytime I was in the car I just was a sponge and I think it just found me at the right time and it, it, it totally sort of felt like a path uh, and answered so many of the questions I had about how am I going to do this? And, and, you know, this has got challenging issues, obviously. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the story. I'm so glad for that. And I, I just was talking with the attorneys that were here this last weekend and they were saying, you know, how did you get started? And, and where did this whole from hostage to hero thing come from? And I said, well, you know, I started in criminal law and I was there watching this and noticing that the big problem was, is that jurors didn't want to be there. And so I went and I started looking at all, you know, what I could get my hands on in terms of what ear and jury selection. And there wasn't anything out there. Like it was like this afterthought, like nobody was thinking about, you know, how do we get jurors to actually want to be there? And so I'm so um, incredibly honored that that made such a big impact on you. How did you end up using H2H 
in the case. And actually, I should step back for a minute. Let's talk about what you identified as the issues in your case first. And then if, if those meld together, go ahead and well, let us know how you end up using H2H. I think the issues were a, a lot of that that fear. This was my first trial since COVID. Um, I was going to be, and so I knew we were going to be dealing with some issues on top of the fact that jurors don't want to be there. This is a very liberal, I should say liberal is the wrong word, um, a very uh, diverse area of Atlanta. It's um, the CDC is in DeKalb County, Emory University is in DeKalb County, and it also has a lot of poverty. So it's it's incredibly, you've got really high intellectual aspects of it, folks who are very conscientious about COVID, and you've got an area of the population that's been really hit, hit incredibly hard by COVID. Um, so that was, was a something we were worried about the fact that you know they don't a lot of times people don't want to be there anyway they definitely don't want to be there now they're going to be scared it's going to be their first time coming to jury um selection after covid and oh by the way telling them it's a three-week trial they're gonna hate me so much and so i think that was really what jumped out about the book to me was it was a, a path towards addressing all of those fears um on the on a, on a grand scale secondarily the the aspect of what are your fears you know what kind of juror do do we need for this case mm -hmm. and my and, and you say it repeatedly in your podcast for a reason and i think i'm glad you keep saying it and you should keep saying it because making trial lawyers sit down and actually write something on paper instead of just think about it is hard for us for mm -hmm. some for a lot of it's hard for me so that to me was incredibly impactful. Like, what would I need a jury to believe in order to win? I need them to believe mm. that mentally ill drug addicts still deserve proper care. I need them to believe that people can get better from that, that recovery is possible, that substance abuse issues and bipolar are treatable disease. I need them to Especially not- Especially someone like, like Nick, who was trying to get better, right? He was, he checked himself in. Yes. He went to the different, thir the 13 different places. So you've got such a, a great story there in terms of a plaintiff who, who are an addict who wants to get better. And I'm just going to stop you there for people who are wondering what the heck Natalie's talking about. She's talking about our ideal juror profile. So the way that we start in all of our cases in terms of how to approach voir dire is we start with what are you scared of, right? What what are all, which you guys are really great at coming up with. That's the easiest part of our water method. What are you scared of? How's the defense going to defend this? List it all out, right? And right now, I'm going to take the opportunity to say, if you go to sorryswears.com, we've got the HH fundamentals class. It tells you exactly how to do this. But step one is fears. And so then Natalie here is talking about step two, which is develop that ideal juror profile go in and look at each separate fear and ask yourself, what would my ideal juror, if I could build it brick by brick, what would this juror have to believe about this fear on my list so that it's no longer a fear? And it sounds like you, you, you were armed with going in and looking for your juror. Let me ask you this, Natalie, before H2H, what kind of Wadir did you do? What was your, your standard Wadir? I know well, it had been a while since you tried a case, but. Yeah, it had been a while since I tried a case, but I had <clears> been, <throat> um, I guess the last sort of deep dive I had done on anything was reptile and, mm. um, and Don Keenan's a, a mentor of mine and someone I looked up to and, and have 
met with and talked to before. And so that, you know, y'all's approaches are very complementary in a lot of ways to me in terms of, uh, you know, trying to find what that jurors are going to care about something that, that matters in their own life. You know, ultimately, mm -hmm. that, that idea of reptile, you got to make it something that they have some connection to. And I think I married some of that with what does my ideal juror need to be for the principles of my case, but also I need to find people who care about mental illness and who care about substance abuse treatment in this country and the implications of what happens to all of us, and our vulnerabilities, if mental illness is not properly treated and substance abuse is not properly treated. I think it helps going in, knowing <clears throat> exactly what it is that you're looking for. I think so often, and that's why H2H is so different is we go in going, okay, who here's bad for me, right? Yes. I'm going to go in and I'm going to kill, kill off the rats. Yes. And then you're just kind of left with, well, whatever's left. Right? That was my complete Where change in mentality. That, I mean, your book changed my mentality of that because it was so freeing to go, oh, I, now I know what I want. And I've committed to who do I really want on this jury? And, and you've said it before, like, of course the bad ones, we had six strikes on the plaintiff side, defense side had six strikes. We truly only needed three strikes because oh. what was bad for us in, in terms of, and we did some things that I think in terms of opening that up, we had a jury questionnaire and it's something that I- Those are always helpful love and had never had before was afraid of but now am a, a huge fan of if done well but they were seven now you know you don't need to be scared of the jury yeah. yeah yeah um yes or no seven questions but um but yeah that was that just changed my mentality because I was I knew I was looking for a group and I wanted that group dynamic that was important to me and for all the reasons that you talk about in the book and so, yeah, it just, it felt like jury selection was more fun than it had ever been. It was three days of jury selection. We went through almost 80, 80 something jurors to try to get um, to our 14. They actually struck 20 for cause, defense struck 20 for cause. I struck one for cause. Okay. Okay. I just love this because now you and I don't know each other, right? This no. is the first time we have seen each other and, and you are saying the exact same thing. I mean, down to like actual words that people who've come through the H2H method of saying that, you know, you, you weren't so worried about strikes. You hardly used any and that it was fun. So talk to me more about the fun part, because I think this is what people don't get, you know, my job isn't necessarily to help you guys win. I mean, that is awesome when we win, right? We love winning, but it's to make this process more fun and enjoyable. So you can actually enjoy your life. And when we get the win, yes. And when we don't, it's okay. So talk to me about that whole idea of it being more fun. I think the, and a lot of this stuff sounds corny. I'm sure it does, but there was a, I had just accepted in my mind that if I can you know, they, the defense had never offered us um, anywhere close to their policy limits, say it that way. Um, so, and the family knew that they were doing this for a bigger reason than just the money that always, always. some aspect of that for sure that um, it was not like, and, and I've done plenty of my fair share of, you know, fender benders, God knows. Um, but it wasn't just, hey, somebody needs $5,000, $10,000 worth of medical bills. They 
they had a passion for the accountability of bringing this issue to trial. So that gave me a freedom to be able to talk to these jurors with a um, passion and an openness that I think resonated because I, I knew that we were doing the right thing and going to trial no matter whether I won or lost. I knew that this was a case that needed, the issues were important enough that it needed a opportunity for a trial. And I realized and believed that it would change, I believe still that it will change the mental health care industry and the drug abuse treatment industry forever. I mean, y'all are on the side of the right. You know, I say that all the time in the podcast, y'all stand on the side of the right. And what I hear consistently from my clients that have been able to achieve the white whale, right? The eight figure verdict is that they all say the same story. It wasn't until I let go and just focused on what I was there to do and my love for my client, my love for the case and my love for the jury that it came, right? It's when we, when we, we focus so um, tightly on that verdict, then we lose sight of what we're actually there to do. Like I, we I didn't have a go. number. I mean, to me, a win was going to be a win in this case, honestly, because it was such no one, <laughs> my, my friends who love me still were like, Oh, Matt, like, golly, like this is, they can list all the reasons that are obvious as to why it was going to be a struggle. And, and even if you win, the number's going to be low. And I'm like, I don't care. I don't care. I'm just tired of not leaving it all on the field. So I'm going to go do this. They're, like, I don't care how many continuances there are. They're going to have to outlive me to avoid trying this case. And I'm younger than they are. So, <laughs> so let's go. Yes. I love this. I love this. Okay. So talk to me about voir dire. How was it? And what did you do? Um, what did you use from the book or the podcast that was helpful? So we did, so with the questionnaires, everyone who said yes to any of the questions on the questionnaires, we specifically did individual voir dire with them because the issues we were asking about on the questionnaire, have you lost a loved one to mental illness or substance abuse, were so you know, private and emotional that we wanted to respect that as much as we could. The unexpected beauty of that that I loved was that it gave me a chance to because the plaintiffs talk first, right? So when they would bring them in individually, we had actually asked very little, no general questions yet. So I got to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation first with 70% of the jury. And Love that lovely that there's just no comparison for that. Um, and so I would ask the questions and I would say it as we, like we, all of us lawyers, we're sorry to have to ask you this. We understand this is incredibly private. You check yes to losing a family member from suicide. Can you, do you mind talking to me about that just for a few minutes? And then it was, you know, I had to be very delicate with how I pulled it out and, and what I asked. And um, I was, you know, gracious. That was genuine because I, I know that, you know, there was a lot of tears from almost everybody that came in. There was tears at some point. So, um yeah, but that gave an opportunity that by the end of that process, everybody knew kind of sort of what the case was about. They had pieced it together, even though they had heard nothing yet. <laughs> and so um, the, the 20 some odd strikes for cause, the majority of which were because they were saying we cannot be fair to the defense just based on what we know so far, which is nothing. They didn't even know what the case was about, but they had such <laughs> negative experiences with mental health issues and substance abuse issues 
that, um, and we were not anticipating that. That was not something that we could have. Predict. But it's such a great point. It's such a great point because so many people, when they learn the HGH method, go, okay, I get this. I'm going in there. I'm looking for my ideal juror. I'm getting them to talk about it. But as soon as they do that, the other side is going to kick them off. And I always say, listen, y'all stand on the side of the right. So once you get your principles out there, then what is a principle? 99% of people believe it. It's a fundamental truth. It's going to be hard to kick off the entire 88 jurors, right? The majority of them are going to, to rally for you. Was that a fear of yours though? Like, oh my God, they're kicking off all these people that are, that are for us. No, because I think once the principles were out there and they were talking about like this, you know, the, the importance of mental health treatment and that it should be held to the same standard, if not a higher standard than, than mm -hmm. medical cases, because you know, one of the things that came up in the trial is if, if someone misdiagnoses a broken bone, right? And there's some, I'm using an example that came up in trial. Um, that affects that one person, right? And, and that, that can be a case and we can litigate that. If someone mishandles a, a mental illness in a person, it doesn't stay contained. It's the same thing we're hearing about on the news. It's the, the reason why, you know, Nick being in that road in the middle of a psychotic event in the middle of the night, um, it's danger to all of us. And so these people truly believed that um, mental health was something that had not received the um, the value in our society from a treatment perspective that it needed to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Love that. And um, also we... to correlate substance abuse and mental health issues. And that to me, I was worried about that, but that ended up being something I didn't need to worry about also. I mean, people live in the world just like we do. They know that there's a great majority of the time where there's one, there's the other with substance abuse issues and mental health issues. And you really can't mm -hmm. treat one without treating both. Um, yeah. Lots of times I did the visual of an iceberg where the substance abuse is the part that you're seeing tipping out of the top of the water. What's, what's larger underneath, which will really um, cause real damage is that those long, deep mental health issues. So that was something that everybody, or the great majority of which completely knew that, which was a huge fear of mine. <laughs> right. Come to find out jurors are people. And yeah. Um, yeah, right. I mean, this is why I keep reminding y'all that you don't need to be persuasive, right? You, you, the, do I need to persuade you that the sky is blue, right? I mean, like you stand on the side of the right. So the more you try to persuade the jurors that your side is right when it is right, because you stay on the side of the right, the more confused they're getting a little suspicious. Like, why are you trying so hard to convince me? But when you allow the jury, you give the jury the control and you say, you know, what do you think about these principles? And in fact, in my method, they give you the principles, they own it and they're enrolled. I mean, that's what's so hard about being a plaintiff attorney is that y'all have to get people to do something. And the easiest thing is to not do anything at all and just leave things as they are. And so to get them to, to actually take action, they've got to be enrolled, which means talking about the actual things in the case, which means not talking about hobbies and bumper stickers and what news they watch, right? Which just becomes pointless um, when you what's can funny actually is have that after, topics. After all of that individual talk about real issues, we couldn't go back then during, during, during the general. Then we did started the general once we had that all done. I had already made a 
connection with these folks. They would have, I would have lost so much credibility if I'd have gone back and started asking them about, you know, what TV shows they were. Hobbies? So I, <laughs> I, I said that, like when I got up, I said, I'm not going to do this. I know that we've been here for three days and y'all, some of y'all have been through jury selection. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do what's normally done, but I am going to talk about the stuff that are, that y'all are going to hear about. I want to know, you know, who knows about this issue and who knows about this issue on a general level. And I, I skipped all of the, the fluff questions that I had been using and leaning on for 20 years. What most people have, right? That's how y'all were trained, right? Let me go in there and try to create rapport. And then, but really I'm thinking, well, well who are the bad ones? Look, if I create this rapport, then they'll show themselves and I can kill them off, right? So it sounds like you had a real mindset shift and I love that. So did you feel like you were able to create a group in what year? Yes. And I think that was the, so to the extent that we were using our strikes, it was more about using our strikes to make that the strongest possible group, not so much people that we thought were horrible for us. There was one or two, but once we got it past the two or three that we thought, oh, they're, you know, they're not, they're not good for us under any scenario. Um, then it was, okay, who do we think is going to be this best cohesive group? And we've used oh. our strikes to, to make people to kind of, who, who do we think are going to like each other and are going to work well together? Um, and that's, that's what they and, do. That's yeah. what they, that's their whole job is to work together. And it's so much easier to get a verdict from a group than 12 individuals, right? Especially when you need a unanimous verdict, which is not always the case, but it obviously is the case in your jurisdiction, um, at least for a case like this. So um, you, you, you got your jury the way you wanted it. And then you started with opening. How did opening go? It was great. And it was, I, I think I kept a lot of the same principles. It was, I want to be very cautious, you know, conscientious of your time. The case is about two things. It's about, you know, they should not have discharged him when they did, and they should not have taken him off his meds period. The defense is going to get up here and tell you about his 15 years and every drug he's ever done. And every time he's gone through rehab and it didn't work and, You'll hear that for two weeks and it has zero to do with the case. The case is only about these three weeks and how they treated him in this facility. And that's what the case is about. And then the defense proceeded to do exactly what I told the jury they were going to do. Which made you look super smart. Well, it it made me look honest, right? Yes. And so they sort of fell right into that, which shocked me. I wasn't anticipating. I kind of thought, well, maybe they'll go off script and and not do that because I've said that they're going to do it. Nope. They stuck right to their script. So I always talk about how there are two things that you must do to win a plaintiff case, right? Two, two questions you must answer for jurors. And it sounds like you did rock star on the first question. The first question is how could this have been avoided? So I love how, because if jurors can't know how it could have been avoided, then that goes under the shit happens, mistakes happen umbrella, right? But if you can clearly communicate, this is how it could have been avoided, right? Keep him on his meds, don't discharge him, right? Then the jury's like, okay, this could be, a, this could have been avoided. It sounds like you did a great job of doing that and really simplifying it down to that. That's the other place where we would go wrong in opening statements is we just throw everything possible in there that we think will help us and that actually hurts us. But there the second question and the one that I'm, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. So we'd taken 30 depositions. I mean, we had litigated, the discovery of this had been voluminous. We had, you know, them changing records after they found out that Nick had died. We had so much stuff 
that if I would have tried to put it all in the opening, which you want to, and every lawyer wants to say, let me tell you all my good stuff, mm-hmm. it, then you, you just are overwhelming. And yep. so we, we chose not to do that in openings, even though that was hard. <laughs> It's so, it's so hard. I mean, but as Rick Friedman says, you know, what are the tools of the defense confusion, complexity, and ambiguity, right? So the more simple and clear you can be, the more we win cases. So the second question that I said, even if you can show that it could have been avoided, you got to prove how money is going to make a difference or how money can help. So that's always tough in a wrongful death case. And, and, and people come and they go, I get what you're saying. Sorry, but if I've got a death case, how do I do that? So I'm going to ask you, how did you talk about money in a wrongful death case with the jurors to get this incredible, I mean, 50, did I hear you right? 55 million just for the meaning of his, like his life. That's, that's incredible. Talk so to the about value that. in Georgia, it's the value of the decedents, the, the value of their life to themselves, not mm-hmm. the value of their life to other people. It's how much did they value their life? And I took the position that someone who was willing to go to thir- willingly go into 13 different facilities, that there's no example of anybody who thinks that they have more value because he believed he had value to get better and could get better because he was a very smart guy. He'd been the kicker, the starting kicker all four years on his high school football team. He was a beautiful guy, um, just, you know, and loved and you know, good with the ladies. And he had a five-year-old little boy at the time. Um, Mm. So he, he was there because I believe he believed he could, he could beat this thing. And so we took the position of that's, that's the most value. Um, Yeah. I love that. So how did you talk about that? Did you, and did you start that conversation while you're opening or did you say that for closing? I taught, started talking about money in Vordire, I, I put a number out there. That was one of the last questions I asked in Vordire was I said, you know, if, if the, and I didn't know what number to use. So I used 10 million. I said, if the, if the facts are such, you know, is there anybody here that has a, it's just a philosophical um, opposition under any scenario of giving more than a certain amount of money, even if it was 10 million or whatever the number is, and so that, and I did it not so much because I cared about the answers. I didn't really actually care about the answers. I just wanted them to hear a big number early on so that Anchoring. it wouldn't be mm-hmm. shocking to them when they heard it at closing. And what did you ask for in closing? So in closing, I asked for 10 million in, in pain and suffering and 40 for the value of his life. And so they, they went gave, over what you asked. They did. They gave 15 Girl. million what I asked for. Were you able to talk to them afterwards? I was, I was. And, and what they people, say. So we talked a lot about, and in Georgia, and I'm sure this is true in, in lots of states, you know, we can't say send a message. All, there's all these rules, things that you can't say. Yeah, But most we can say that, and what I did say to the jury is that ultimately, you know, our ability to make change in the world um, comes in ways that we don't ex- expect. And it doesn't come around often. And um, sometimes it looks like a jury summons. And so mm-hmm. you get to decide today how you feel about mental health treatment and you get to decide how you feel about substance abuse treatment. And this is your opportunity to um, let your voice be heard because so often we, we see these tragedies, we experience the tragedies, we feel so powerless. And, and this is an opportunity where you're not powerless and it doesn't come around often. I know a lot of folks are happy they don't have to get, deal with uh, jury selection 
very often, but this is your opportunity. So you get to say how you feel about it. And so that way I was asking for a big number. It wasn't, it wasn't offensive because I think they knew I believed it. Mm -hmm. That which we talk about in H2H, you got to own your number. And so what I, this is exactly how we, we teach our, our clients, how to, to deal with the money issue in wrongful death cases is to talk about what it means. What does that verdict mean? So here it meant, and you clearly communicated that your verdict means what you, what you want to statement you want to make right about mental health and addiction issues. And, and, and I love how you did that beautifully, beautifully done. Um, so what were your biggest learnings from this, from this trial? Uh, I think the, you know, a lot of this is probably specific to our ideas about how women try cases versus how men try cases. You know, I was, I had a fabulous co-counsel. It was one of my oldest friends in the world. His name is Dax Lopez. And he had just gotten off the bench. We graduated high school together, actually. And he had just gotten off the bench from being a state court judge. And this was his first trial off the bench. Um, and so he was my co-counsel, but I did 75% of the, or perhaps 70% of the you know, with the witnesses and I, and the jury was half women. Um, and then the defense were guys. And, um, for the most part, they had some women that were co-counsel, but they didn't do very much. And I think that our, in 2022, a diverse trial table is more important than we realize. I think, Mm. um, when I, did the direct of Nick's mom. It was a mom talking to a mom. And then when Dax, my co-counsel Dax, he questioned the dad and it was a dad talking to a dad. And so there was a humanity there that I embraced. Um, I cried for the first time in trial. You know, you told not to let that wall down. And when something was really bad, I let a tear go. And when it was funny, I laughed. And when there was a joke to be made, I made it. And you know, I was going to win or lose, but it was not going to be because there was any lack of authenticity, you know, and it was just, we were, we made it a point to be very real professional always, but, but genuine. I love it. I love it. I'm sorry. I skipped over the question. I, I said that asked you, if you talked to the jury, what did they say to you? They were, they, they repeated my opening to me. They were like, they did exactly what you told us they would do. And they, all they wanted to talk about was the things he had done wrong in his life. They didn't want to talk about the medical aspects of do you, or do you not remove someone cold Turkey from their lithium from a pharmacological standpoint, we bought, brought in a pharmacologist who explained to them, you know, we hear this on commercials all the time. Don't stop taking, but why, why does it matter? What's the implications of that? And the defense didn't want to talk and get into those kind of substantive issues because that's really what the case was about because those the scientific aspect of that was bad for them so but the jury was really so then we're the educators the whole time we're the ones educating them and then that just makes us look that much more believable because we're telling them information and um and we gave the jury i mean we gave the jury a lot of really sort of fairly complicated pharmacology issues about how the mood stabilizers versus antipsychotics and and different medications and why they work and how why they take a little while to work and um but that just 
I think legitimized us more than anything. Um, so yeah, I think that was that was something that really resonated with the jury is that we we presented to them exactly what we told them we would, and um, that just built trust. So absolutely, absolutely. What would you say? And we're going to go to questions here in just a minute. So if you have the questions, please load them up in the Q and A box. I won't be able to see them very clearly in the chat feature. So Q and A box. And also, if you haven't already gotten H H fundamentals, Christy's going to drop a link in for that. Um, where you can learn how to do all the things that Natalie's been telling us about today. Natalie, what do you think the biggest impact of, of reading the H2H book, listening to the podcast and, and coming into the method um, had on this case and on you personally? I really think that I go back to this a lot about, um, you know, the, the negative, you have a chapter in the book about the empowering beliefs. And I don't know, I can't remember exactly the way. Limiting beliefs. Yes. Limiting beliefs. Yeah. And, and just that, that, that aspect of it, I mean, truly owning all these fears, you know, like really digging deep in they're, you know, what am I afraid of? I'm afraid they're going to think, so what, that he's dead because he was a drug mm-hmm. addict. I'm afraid mm-hmm. that they're going to think his family's better off. I mean, I went deep on my fears in yes. order to find you know, that it's his fault that he's a drug addict and that drugs maybe caused his mental illness. And, you know, is the world a better place? I mean, I went really deep in all the things I was truly afraid of a jury feeling in order to find who I believed my ideal jury would be. They would have to believe in mental health treatment. They'd have to believe that substance abuse is a treatable illness. They have to believe that substance abuse is an illness. There's lots of people that don't believe that, right? So right. Um, that to me, I think was just the most impactful because it gave me permission to kind of ask those hard questions of myself first mm. and find out my answers to them because mm. I had to find my answers to them before I can go sell it to anybody else, right? I had to kind of come clean with how do I, do I really, you know, where are my principles? Um, Love it. And then you could go in knowing exactly who you were looking for. Yes. No guesswork. No guesswork. I love that. Well, Natalie, if you stay on with us, we've got some questions of people who um, are here wondering about some things. Sure. Matthew, one of our crewbies in the H2H2, hi, Matthew, says, what questions were on your questionnaire? Would you mind sharing that with us? Natalie? Yeah, I'll, I'll do it from memory as best I can. There were seven. Um, it was yes or no. Have you or a loved one ever... Um, um, been on lithium or Seroquel, the drugs that were at issue. Um, have you or a close family member ever been uh, hospitalized for mental health issues or substance abuse issues? Um, have you lost a close family member to suicide or mental illness or drug abuse, drug or alcohol abuse? Um, it was it was very kind of the yes or no standard because we were trying to identify folks who had personal experiences with these issues. Um, so they were not, they were not, you know, the defense had taken the position this was a suicide. We took the position this was never, it was never our position this was a suicide. It had not been ruled a suicide. It had been ruled an accidental death, even though it was, you know, the, there was no question that Nick placed himself in the road, but there was testimony from a 911 operator that um, of a call that had come in beforehand of someone hearing someone near the road yelling seeming disoriented so we and then you know they so we had to figure out 
folks who had really close personal issues with um, with a lot of those subjects so that we could, you know, it was just a lot of potentially triggering information in the trial. And people who had lost children, you know, Mike and Tina, the mom and dad are going to be sitting there for three weeks. And, you know, we had to get into that, that kind of, uh, those kind of questions. So that, that was basically the, the gist of this questionnaire. Love it. Thank you. Uh, Rhonda's asking, how did you introduce Nick to the jury? So as a person. Look at that smile. I love that smile. It uh, says right there how, how much you care about this. Yeah, we we really took the position of um, here's this here's this beautiful guy who was all these things, and he also had you know, twelve years of substance abuse uh, use over time, and he would have periods of sobriety and not sobriety, and he had mentally ill. And you can be both. You can be a funny, handsome, you know, intellectual. Um, life of the party, you know, deeply spiritual person and also have a mental illness and, and drug issues. And so we, I introduced him the way I think he would have introduced himself. Oh, love that. Beautiful. Um, how did you showcase the defendant's culpability and wrongfulness without coming off as the only attacking them? It was, it, so the case was interesting because 95% of the facts were not in dispute. There was not a dispute that they had taken him off his meds. There was not a dispute that they had discharged him. Um, we had done so much during discovery that we had really fleshed out. And I told the jury that, that this is not a case where we're asking you to decide facts. We're asking you to decide if this was okay or not. And, um, and we were taking the position that it was, look, there's no intentional wrongdoing here. We're not taking the position that they were trying to hurt him. Or, you know, they obviously didn't know what was going to happen, but it was such egregious conduct that they had just gotten so lax for so long. And they basically, their defense was, well, yeah, but he's a drug addict and a mental health patient, but. And wanted that, to die anyway. I but mean, that's, that's so egregious. Your facility treats, your facility says yeah. treatable. And you're inviting these folks, but then turning around and, and trying to diminish their life's value based on the exact thing that you say you can heal. It was very much like what I think a nursing home case would do where they'd say, yeah, but it's an old person, mm -hmm. but that's your business. Your business is older folks. That's exactly right. And was the jury angry? Could you tell if they were angry at this behavior? They, they were angry. Yes. Well, they see, were... and that's the point there is that the, that question is, is, is. What I want to speak to you on that question is how did you do it without, you know, picking on them? Well, sometimes you need to pick on them. I mean, we have literally had uh, mock juries here. I mean, I've done thousands of mock juries with my, my clients before they're going to trial. And we have literally had jurors, like our mock jurors say, why aren't you more mad about this? Like, like they're like confused as to why the attorney is having no emotional reaction at all. Listen, we're not supposed to quote unquote advocate, but you can certainly clue cue in with the jury and we never want to go above the jury in their emotional response but at least meet them there because they look at you as their leader and if you're just like yeah this happened and it's no big deal which in your mannerisms and your nonverbals, as we teach you around here 
the ju- that confuses the jury. It's cognitive. I used dissonance. my vocal range in the. That's right. I sarcastic. I would be a little sarcastic, and okay, yep. say this. But then when I when they would say something that was crazy town, my next question, my octave would go up. Like my, I would be like, for real? <laughs> like that's yeah. And so like, I, I wasn't huh? being crazy person. I wasn't yelling at them, but I could let my uh, thoughts about the answers to the questions be very obvious. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Exactly. Ed is asking, hi, Ed. We were on our webinar last uh, week. Mm-hmm. I'm not giving up talking to jurors after. I do think they try to do the right thing and make what they think is the right decision. But what I'm getting afterwards is post-talk rationalization of the decision. Ed, I am literally doing a, a, a podcast after this webinar. I'm recording a podcast on why you should talk to the jury. And I talk about that exact thing. So stay tuned. It's coming out next week. That is, they made a decision and they came up with an ex- explanation rather than an actual explanation of their thought process. I think I must know what to ask them. What questions should I ask jurors afterward that will actually get true insights on what can help me in the future? I'm not sure, Natalie, if you want to take that or I'll take one question, because I, I I agree with him in large part. Have felt I do that too. Way, a lot not of that time. you shouldn't talk to him, but that they're um, going to give I, 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 I take the approach of thank you. <laughs> and uh, is there anything that that you want to ask me. So inevitably when they ask, Mm. when I give them permission to ask me questions, I get more information about their thought process from that than I do me trying to interrogate them. You know, and and sometimes I'll do it as, well, what did you think about this witness? Or what did you think about that? Try not so much to put them on the point as to why did I win or why did I lose? Why did I lose? Mm -hmm. Right, but more about, hey, what worked, what didn't work? For you. I love it. I love it. I'm stealing that. I'm literally writing a note right now that I'm putting that in the podcast for next week. Okay. Um, we're ending, getting to the end. A couple more questions um, from Roger. Did you keep the clients in the trial the whole time? Yes. I debated that and decided yes, to do that. Um, I considered letting them out. If we were going to ask them, you know, do all of those sort of hot topic questions during, uh, but we ended up having the questionnaire do a lot of that work for us. But yes, I did have the mom and dad in there the whole time and, you know, coach them about what was going to be an appropriate reaction and what wasn't. If they needed to take a break, you walk out, that was going to be okay. You know, but Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we did. Great. Todd, uh, did anyone in the veneer ask, answer yes to any of the seven questions in your questionnaire? To answer all, to all of them or yes. So there were a few that answered yes to all the questions that had personally been in treatment and had lost family members and had been on these meds. Um, so there were a few that had, there was one guy who had been in AA for 30 uh, The attendant at Grady Hospital here in Atlanta and the e- Grady ER psychiatrist was one in the, in the group. Um, it was a really diverse group of folks in terms of folks who worked in the mental health field, whether it's therapists, social workers. I was afraid of those for my jury in some respects, I think, because I was afraid that they've heard every sad, horrible story and they're almost numb to those stories if they work in the industry. Not because I thought they wouldn't think that the conduct was egregious. I just thought that they might be almost numb to sad stories and egregious conduct. So, um, Okay. We've got, um, Alinda who is asking, she's in Georgia, who your judge was and how you got the judge to allow the questionnaire and how it was given. Linda, we're going to connect you with Natalie so she can talk to you about that. Um, 
offline, just because that may not apply to all of the people listening today. And if Natalie is willing to, to chat with you, email me, I'll tell her. yeah, yeah. So, um, go ahead and, and you can connect with, uh, with Natalie, if you don't know how to do that, you can contact us at info at sorrydlm.com. At this point, I want to thank you, Natalie, and congratulate you again. Um, and those of you who are like, okay, what are all these things that Natalie's talking about and how do I learn more right now? And it's only through next Wednesday, we have the H2H fundamentals. It's 40 video lessons on how to put your voir dire opening and closing together step-by-step step with a workbook and all kinds of bonuses. But if you don't, you're not sure, you go to the website, you're like, ah, I don't know if I can afford this, or I don't know if this is for me. We've got a free webinar next Tuesday at uh, October 4th at 10 a.m. Pacific, where I'm going to walk you through the whole thing. And I'm going to show you how three ways, three strategies on how to read a juror's mind. So you definitely want to be there for that. Christy's going to drop the link in the comments right now. Natalie, thank you so much for being here. Is there anything you want to leave our listeners with? Just, you know, I told someone the other day when I was talking about like being scared is normal. Um, Mm. And I'll know that, that it's, it's, it's probably a permanent condition to some extent, but it's, if you're not afraid, then you, you don't care. So yeah, Mm, that's exactly right. Yeah. Thanks guys. Congratulations. We hope to see more of you around here. Thank you. All right. Sure. All right. Thanks. Okay. Thank you. We'll talk to everybody next week. See you at the webinar. Bye-bye. By popular demand, next week is an encore of my exclusive free training in case you missed it, the three powerful strategies to help you read, yes, a juror's mind. I know y'all are wanting the superpower to boost your confidence going into trial. You've literally told me I'm teaching this content live and you need to sign up to get in on it. Go to sorryswears.com forward slash live, sorryswears.com forward slash live, L-I-V-E. So go do that now.